Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hey everyone, this is Afro Verdict with your host Victor Anakin. Last week, we celebrated World Kiswahili Language Day, a day dedicated to acknowledging the significant role the language has in uniting people. Today, I'm joined by a language expert, Maya Nikolska, who will share her experience from the celebrations in Zanzibar, discuss the relations between the peoples of Russia and Africa, as well as the role of Russian people learning African languages, among other things. Maya, welcome to Afro Verdict. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, I'm Maya Nikolska. I'm a lecturer at Mgimo University, which is basically the most famous, probably, Russian university for students of diplomacy and international relations, and a language instructor in Kiswahili and English. And I also do Africa Studies as a research fellow at the Institute for International Studies, a think tank as well. So I've been basically involved in all things Africa since I was 20 years old because I did, Kiswahili was one of my majors, essentially. I did that for a degree and um, I've been on and off in terms of Africa-related jobs throughout my whole life. And uh, here we are, finally, we are becoming mainstream, <laughs> you see people who do Africa research and related stuff because of how increasingly engaged Russia is becoming with African countries, which I probably I see as a very positive development. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So last Friday, that would be the 7th of July, you went to Zanzibar to take part in uh, an event dedicated to Kiswahili Day. How can you describe your overall impression from, you know, from that event? Oh, yeah, that's been amazing. <laughs> that was really, really fun. The thing is, the celebrations did not start on July the 7th. They started several days prior to that. We were even invited for a whole week. Unfortunately, I couldn't make the whole week. Uh, starting from July the 1st, they had a marathon in Arusha, which is uh, the northern part of the country and which is close to Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah, so the rest of the, the rest of the week, the rest of the celebrations were held in Zanzibar proper and Zanzibar is considered home to the standard version of Kiswahili or they call it Kiswahili Sanifu, which is where, you know, there is a saying that Kiswahili was born in Zanzibar, Tanzania, then it got sick in Kenya and then eventually died in Uganda. Now they're trying to make things, to make things work in a slightly different way, that is to revive Kiswahili and perhaps to give it a different impetus in other countries and uh, East African countries first off, but also others across the continent. And when it comes to the celebrations themselves, obviously the thing I didn't even expect that that would be such a high level of representation. I'm talking first and foremost about um, the president of Zanzibar, which is Dr. Hussein Ali Mwini, who attended uh, the July 7th celebrations. And there were also a couple of uh, other ministers from Tanzania Bara, which is mainland, but um, mostly from Zanzibar, Minister of Culture, Information, uh, the what they call Makatibu Waku, which is permanent secretaries in the ministries. So in general, that was a very, very, very high level. And um, the celebrations themselves are very varied, if I can put it that way. So for instance, on July the 6th, we had 
something that resembles very much a May 1 demonstration that we used to have in Russia, you know, that is when you have a lot of people basically marching all the way uh, for for an hour or so from one place to another, accompanied by a music orchestra with people singing and dancing and crying all the time, Kiswahili, oh yeah, which means, well, basically, hooray to Kiswahili, etc. And uh, we were accompanied by a bunch of school children, police officers, there was a police music orchestra and all these people just imagining the diplomats, the the officials, uh, the ministers marching together with us. It was, you know, it was amazing. It was an amazing display, I would say, of the unity of the people in every respect, in every respect possible, because Kiswahili brings together people from all walks of life, from all social strata, if you can put it that way. And this is something you could see clearly during those celebrations. Wow, that must have been a very, very vibrant celebration. Yeah, yeah, very. Yeah, I was saying, absolutely. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of some of the festivals we have in South Africa and where the, the marching bands are also very, very popular. Even in school, every school event, uh, we also had marching bands and yeah. I guess uh, Southern Africa likes to do that sort of thing, along with East Africa as well. So you mentioned that uh, Zanzibar is considered the the original source of the Kiswahili language. How did then Kiswahili evolve from being the language of the trading cities of the Eastern African coast to being the lingua franca of the whole region and the largest African language? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think it it, it came in stages. There was the first wave of Swahili spreading, as you said, in the trading city of the East African coast, but then even further into the mainland, because the caravans carrying the slaves and the, the ones in, involved in slave trade were moving inside further into the continent. And the trading cities that first emerged on the East African coast were proliferating, were spreading, if we can put it that way, into what is now mainland Tanzania, but also places like Burundi, places like Kenya mainland, etc., etc. And you know that there are also different versions of Kiswahili, not only the Zanzibar one, which is supposed to be the, or is commonly accepted rather, to be the most appropriate, the most standard one, but also there are local versions of Kiswahili in Kenya, in Congo, There is a Rwanda, a Rwandan version of Kiswahili, which is a mix of Tanzanian and uh, Congolese, probably. And there are also local versions all over the place in East Africa. And still all of those are Kiswahilis. And I would say that they are probably different in the same way as you would say, well, American English or Indian English are different from British English proper. And then, obviously, the next wave uh, came, I would say, during the colonial times, because the colonizers uh, obviously needed uh, lingua franca to be able to talk to the locals, to the local elites in the first place. When um, we had first German East Africa, then British East Africa, and the next wave was when essentially the National Liberation Movement started. Because if you come to think of it, Kiswahili for so many people was the symbol of freedom and the symbol of, how can we put it, 
self-reliance, maybe, because that was a purely African language. It was a manifestation of all things African to uh, people who resided in East Africa at the time. So even if you come to think of it, even though so many national leaders in East African countries had received very good degrees and very good education back in Britain, for instance, they still tried their best to promote Kiswahili as the tool for unity, for not only national unity that you know was like essentially a bridge between different ethnic groups, but also a unity between what later became to be different nations or different states in the African continent. They would even make speeches in Kiswahili or try to make speeches in Kiswahili. And those speeches have become, if we can put it this way, the samples or maybe the epitome of uh, Kiswahili eloquence, uh, which are still famous to that day, to this day, uh, like the ones made by Mwalimu Nyerere, who is the father of the Tanzanian nation, for instance. And obviously now there is, uh, we can see a new stage uh, taking shape with uh, Tanzania mainly trying to promote its language, not only in East Africa, but also in uh, Africa as a whole and even beyond. Because, well, you probably know that uh, there is this wonderful holiday of Kwanzaa, in, uh, which is widely celebrated in America. And even the word Kwanzaa and so many items that are used this, during that holiday, which is essentially the African, African-American African New Year, if we can put it that way, those names were borrowed from Kiswahili. So Kiswahili is now understood as a um, Bantu identity, part of the Bantu identity, right, that so many people subscribe to. I would not say that there is a Swahili identity that has taken uh, shape so far, but uh, so many people see it as something that they can sign up to because this is part of their Bantu heritage. And Bantu is what makes so many Africans what they are African. Like, but what we say, Black African, uh, there are different groups of people, there are Nilotic ones, Kushitic ones, but a lot of the, most of the African population, the population on the African continent is Bantu. So Kiswahili is a symbol of being Bantu, if I can put it that way. No, no, I understand what you mean. Yeah, very, very interesting. How do you assess the decision of the National Kiswahili Language Council to extend an invitation to the Kiswahili Festival for teachers in Russia for the first time, especially against the backdrop of let's say, quite a complex international setting. It is a complex international setting. Um, and I was really surprised, uh, to be frank, to see that so many people are aware in Tanzania, are aware of what is going on in Russia, in Ukraine, etc. Because I was pretty sure, to be honest, that the people don't really care. <laughs> it's just so far removed from them. It's a remote place and things that are happening, the wars happening in Europe, the conflicts happening in Europe should have nothing to do right, with the, with the African countries, but uh, surprisingly, every person I told that I I was Russian, Russian, almost every person would ask me that question. And on my way on the plane, I met um, a couple of wonderful ladies from Sierra Leone. And this is, by the way, the latest trend, uh, probably, that Africans go on holiday to other African countries. You know, this never happened before. This is impeded, obviously, by the lack of direct flights from one part of Africa, from West Africa to East Africa. So they had to fly all the way through Dubai, which is uh, weird in its own way, but still. And they kept asking me how, how things are in Russia. And they were really surprised to see that I was able to 
travel somewhere from my country because in their understanding when there whenever something like that whenever there is a crisis happening of this scale i would not be allowed to travel to leave the country altogether and but they are all very uh, the people are very nice and empathetic and they understand so many people even regular people in the street taxi drivers knew much more about the current international situation that you would expect the people of africa because once again, like I said, this should be, in my understanding, this is part of the global north. Whatever is happening now in Europe is part of the global north. And theoretically, Africa has so many issues of its own to take care of. But, you know, because usually we in uh, in the global north, the people are very ignorant of what happens in African countries, right? When you come to think of it, it's mostly things like civil wars, Ebola, and well, all things that are not so nice that, that are, well, according to the coverage that we get in the media that are supposed to come from Africa. But the Africans are surprisingly very interested and very keen to find out what is going on in Europe right now. And of course, the fact that they were able to extend an invitation to Kiswahili festivals for teachers in Russia shows that uh, they value the friendship that we have essentially. And this is not the first manifestation of this friendship. For instance, at Mgimo University, we had a modal African Union that was organized by the Mgimo students. And that is essentially a simulation, like you probably heard of uh, similar things like modal United Nations. And yeah, stuff yeah, sure. With, yeah, yeah, where students can participate. Yeah, so they organized this Middle African Union for the first time. And guess which embassy was the most eager to participate in that uh, whole activity as guests of honor? These were, of course, the Tanzanians. And this is, um, I think, this shows how important our relations are, our bilateral relations, which obviously go back many, many years, still from the Soviet times, when Russians, when the Soviets were essentially assisting Tanzanians, but um, also so many other nations in terms of uh, becoming a fully-fledged nation, which was an uphill battle up after so many decades of being colonized. But also, this is uh, a recognition of the efforts that are being made in Russia to promote Kiswahili and to study, to get to know more the East African culture, of which Kiswahili is, of course, uh, a highly significant part. Because we, you know, we have uh, around four universities. I'm saying around four universities because there are two big ones. Gimo University, my the university that I teach at, and there is the Institute for Asian and, and African Studies, which is part of the Mos Moscow State University, obviously. And there is one in St. Petersburg. But uh, there are also, some, sometimes there are random programs of, um, they're random right now, but I hope that they are going to become more permanent. And and sustained in the future uh, programs of Kiswahili teaching. And one reason I would say why the Russian school of Kiswahili is so unique 
is because we have been capable to develop a structure, um, a curriculum of our own without much help from from some other foreign international, let's say, book publishers, for instance. Because if you look at most of the books that have been published, the students' books that have been published, the manuals in uh, Western countries, you will see that a lot of them really lack the proper structure, the grammar, the vocabulary that we have in our books. And that is obviously because Russia has had a very strong School of Africa studies and African language studies for quite a while now. So the fact that, well, we also, by the way, in the Russian embassy in Tanzania right now, we have several Kiswahili speakers. And this is truly unprecedented. When you look at the other embassies at the diplomatic corps in Tanzania, I mean, as strange as it might sound, we are almost the only ones, the Russians are almost the only ones who actually speak Swahili, Kiswahili on a, on a very good level. I'm not talking about, you know, ordering pizza at a restaurant or, you know, getting a ticket on a ferry. I'm talking proper Kiswahili, which includes both the, the slang, the street style, but also proper diplomatic etiquette, protocol, international language, being able to translate and interpret, even at the level of president or a prime minister. And that in itself is absolutely outstanding. No, it is. That's quite spectacular. I noticed, by the way, that a lot of Russian embassies, they tend to basically always speak the, the language of the country that they reside in. Yeah, well, this is part of, first off, this is basic respect, right? You come to a country, you stay there for three, four, five years. What's the point of not learning yeah. the language? No, definitely. And that, then definitely this opens many more doors to you than you might even expect in the first place, because the locals see you as part of their own culture. See, even for the Kiswahili people, the way it originally developed, there is a theory that there were two ways to become a Swahili. Swahili means essentially a Kiswahili person. So one was by birth, because there were the original Kiswahili communities of people who had migrated originally from what is now River Tana in um, the Kenyan territory, I guess. And those were the Waswahilis, the, the people who were Kiswahili by origin, by birth. But then obviously there were many other Waswahilis who became ones by assimilation. And by that, I mean that they were the Hindus, the Arabs, the Persians, the representatives of so many other peoples and nations who came to the Swahili coast and they were accepted very warmly, well, sometimes not very warmly, but at least normally by, by the locals. And the only rule that you had to observe to become part of the Swahili culture was basically to embrace, very often you had to embrace Islam, but not necessarily so, and to observe the rules of the game in social terms, but most importantly, to speak the language. And as long as you spoke Kiswahili, you automatically became an Swahili. And this is the fact that has essentially lasted up until today, because when you speak Swahili, you are no longer a Mzungu, you are no longer a white person from Europe or whatnot or elsewhere. You are um, one of them. And um, I think this is uh, this is a marvelous effect that so many people underestimate. You know, if more businessmen just realized how important it is to speak the language, it would open up so many business opportunities for them. I'm sure, but I'm sure that this is coming in, in the following years. 
For those of you that have just tuned in, this is your host Victor Anakin and you're listening to Afro Verdict brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Kiswahili, a language boasting more than 200 million speakers and mostly spoken in Eastern Africa, truly manages to unite people of different nations and tribes. Having heard a brief historic overview of Kiswahili, let's take a deeper look into the lingua franca of East Africa and what values the language promotes. Tell me, in your opinion, what are the future prospects for the development of Kiswahili? Okay, when it comes to Africa, this depends a lot on political will, of course, and and on the leadership, the choices that the leaders are going to make. And the funding, as always, you know, whenever you start a project, you, you should always think of how much money you're ready to spend and where this money is going to come from. But uh, the leadership issue is that, you know, we have an East African community right now and uh, Kiswahili is um, an, an official language, one of the official languages of uh, the EAC. And now it is also a uh, working language in the SADC, which is the South African Development Community. And um, it has also gained a special status at the level of the African Union, which uh, it, it, it is unique in, in terms of that it is the, the only the only African language to have such a status. Well, which is obviously because it has uh, 150 million speakers in Africa. But the future of Kiswahili will depend on what exactly those political leaders are ready to do to promote Kiswahili. And then the other part of it is probably whether people can find Kiswahili-related jobs. Because for now, in too many countries are a little bit hung up on having, you know, this idea of a European language being very prestigious, very glamorous, and it basically is your key to job opportunities, to um, to civil service, etc., etc. So as long as French or English remain the language of prestige, nothing major is going to happen, even though Kiswahili is obviously going to remain a lingua franca. See, in so many places, for instance, uh, in Kenya, when uh, people come from different tribes and they come from different ethnic groups, they can still understand each other through Kiswahili. And there is a lot of music being uh, made in Kiswahili, a lot of poems, stand-up, etc., etc. So Kiswahili is a language that is uh, understood by so many people. But whether it is going to be elevated to the next level is obviously going to depend, like I said, on the political leadership, because whether the people, right, whether the people are ready to embrace Kiswahili on the language policy, right, whether the people are going to to embrace Kiswahili is... uh, and African language is part of their consciousness, you know, that we are Africans and we need an African language to speak, uh, that the jury is still out, I would say. Even though, well, in Russia, if we are to bring together the two parts of your question, in March, there was a conference at the Lumumba University, which is the Russian University of the People's Friendship, right? It recently regained its, its uh, title, its status as Lumumba University after Patrice Lumumba. So they had a conference uh, in March, and one of the sessions, one of the 
uh, part of the conference was held in Kiswahili, Kiswahili slash English slash Russian, because the scholars had eventually decided that they want to keep Kiswahili as uh, the, the language that they're conversing, because it would only make sense. You know, you have most of the scholars who had a presentation who delivers a report during that, that session were essentially from East Africa. So it would only make sense to speak an East African language. And um, then when it comes to Russia, the development of Kiswahili in Russia, I'm pretty sure that um, as the interest in African affairs grows, even with the, with the summit and the forum coming up now, more and more people are going to look for Kiswahili. Well, first off, it, it does sound exotic to many people. And many people mistakenly think it's an easy language to learn. Mistakenly, I'm saying mistakenly, because it's very easy to start uh, learning Kiswahili. You don't have any, you know, you don't have any uh, complicated hieroglyphics or something to learn. It's just basically Latin script. Uh, but then as uh, time progresses and you move further on, you're going to learn that uh, Kiswahili has quite complicated grammar and vocabulary, but it's also very, very rich. And it gives you an insight into how the people think. And uh, I would say it completely changes your perspective. The language of Kiswahili, you know, we have, as linguists, um, teachers of language, we have this idea that uh, every person have has a language personality, right? Which means that every language you speak, you even behave slightly differently uh, from other languages because you think in that language and these thinking patterns influence how you speak, how you behave and how you socialize with other people. So essentially, Kiswahili is a language that makes you very open, I would say, very practical, like practical oriented and practical terms, but also very joyous. And there is a lot of wisdom in that language that is similar to Russian. Uh, we even have the same proverbs. For instance, we have something that says, a friend in need is a friend indeed. You have the same philosophy in uh, Kiswahili, and uh, that makes us closer, that brings us closer together, I would say. That's very interesting because I know other Bantu languages, for example, Klosa and Zulu and Twana and the rest in South Africa, they also, you know, once you speak them, they do give you this sort of elevated sense or elevated approach to life. Yeah, yeah, it does give you a different approach to life. Absolutely. We have, we even have this philosophy, you know, you have Ubuntu in South Africa. The understanding of uh, this collective consciousness of being human, what it means to be human. And if you are human, that means you are also kind to the people around you. And whatever you do, you do not only think of yourself, you also think of others. Well, in Kiswahili, they have a thing that is very similar. It's called Utu. And it basically means the same, being human. And the ways of being human, being kind and treating other people well. Well, guess what? This is the same thing we have in Russia. Well, just in Russia, this this stems to a large part from the Orthodox, Christian Orthodox philosophy, but it's still the same. The people do care about their community and they try to be nice to people around them. We do not have this, you know, it's very, still very rare in Russia, even in large corporations, you do not have this cutthroat competition unlike in so many Western countries, right? You are always supposed to care for other people, especially for the have-nots. And I think this is what also something that we share in common. 
with the Swahilis. How does learning Swahili in Russia promote a better understanding between the peoples of Russia and Africa? How does that promote a better understanding? Well, first off, learning any language of the local people and the local culture does promote better understanding between between the peoples, right? Yeah, yeah. And we have, I would say, we have a new generation now, a new generation of students who are very keen on learning the culture and the language of uh, African peoples, and they do so without prejudice. I think one very important thing that uh, learning Kiswahili brings, uh, the most important fruit perhaps here, is that there is no prejudice and uh, there are there is no more place for stereotypes. Because when you speak a language, you can essentially talk about things that are more important and things that are bigger than just your daily lives and your daily needs, right? You can have, like I was in Zanzibar, I had conversations about the economy, about politics, about life in general, about God with random people like taxi drivers or ferry drivers or just musicians. I went to Tarab concerts. So they have very beautiful music of their own, music style of their own, which is called Tarab. I went to Tarab concert and we were able to discuss the musical instruments. You know, my mom is a musician. She's a professional uh, piano teacher. And uh, we had a very deep, insightful conversation about those things, which is something you, you basically cannot have if you do not speak the language, right? Of course, yeah. Of course, Kiswahili is the language of diplomacy in, in at all levels. At the very basic level, talking between the, you know, mending fences, building bridges with the people, but and showing people how Russians actually are, the way we are, the way we care about others, the way we care about things that happen in Africa, in Tanzania. This is what one person that I met told me, actually. He said, you see, most people from the global north, when they come here, they just want to know what is the best beach, where can I buy the best cocktail, etc. They never ask me questions like you do, like the Russians do. The Russians want to know what people actually do for a living, what they're interested in. You see, uh, if there is any way that they like to enjoy life, etc. So this actually brings us brings us closer together in all the imaginable ways. And that was Maya Nikolska who highlighted the friendly engagement Russia and Tanzania enjoy. And a large contributor to that is actually the fact that Russians are quite eager to learn African languages. That said, the introduction of Swahili into school curricula in Russia will only improve the mutual understanding of our people. Dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something new. Don't forget that you can listen to our Afroverdict podcast on multiple platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Pocket Casts, Afripods, CastBox, and Deezer. Check out our Sputnik Africa Telegram channel, Facebook page, and Twitter account to always be up to date on local and global events. Keep in mind that it is never too late to learn a new language. That said, I take my adieu and I'll see you next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.